I'm Glenda Smith, and this is SPE Talks 2. Scott Tinker. This is Glenda Smith, VP of Communications with the Society of Petroleum Engineers. During the International Petroleum Technology Conference in Durham, Saudi Arabia in January, I caught up with Scott Tinker. Scott is director of the Bureau of Economic Geology with the University of Texas at Austin and the state geologist of the state of Texas. Thank you for taking the time to visit with us today, Scott. I'm glad to be here, Glenda. How did you get interested in geology and geological science? Well, it was kind of one of these resistance is futile things. My grandfather's a naturalist. My dad was a geologist with Shell for 39 years, and I went to university to be anything but a geologist. But I met the head of the geology program at Trinity when I started, and he said, hey, take my intro class. I did, and I was hooked. So it's been in the family. My son's a geologist, works with Hillcore, so we got four generations. You do a weekly broadcast called Earth Date. I hear it on a local radio station. Please tell our listeners about the purpose of Earth Date and how you choose the topics you cover. You hear it on I a do. local station? Where do you live? I do, in Dallas. Really? That's fantastic. Actually, Earth Date is now in 400 stations nationwide, all 50 states and three countries. I don't know if you've ever heard a show called Stardate on NPR, but I've been listening to that for years and years, and they talk about the universe. And I thought, we need to do an Earth Date. So I hired a researcher, uh, Julie Hennings, and then the guy that I have done all the switch things with to take her research and turn it into a script. And then Harry and I go back and forth on scripts and produce this very short minute and a half weekly broadcast. And we've passed 100 episodes now. It's been fantastic. But it's trying to bring stories of the earth, but not just rocks. It's not geologic stories, but all kinds of stories about the earth to listeners of a variety of ages. So we simplify things, but they're all peer-reviewed and fact-checked. So it's, it's rigorous science, stories that we've heard about or listened to and filtered through. And it's just a lot of fun and it's become very popular. All the research is on the website. So you can see the script, all the background research and, and some of the photo imagery and the references that we used. It's a lot of fun. Amazing. I, I, when, I, when I first heard it, I was like, Scott Tinker, that's interesting. I, I, I thought they were, I find them interesting little bits. They are. hear them on the radio. They're kind of like, um, they're, they're very short little podcasts, if you will, a minute and a half, and, and produced. We go into a recording studio, and I read 13 of them every quarter. <laughs> but, but it's a lot of fun. I assumed that part of the reason for that was educating young people, and I know that's something you've always been passionate about. So where does the passion for education come from? That's about the level I understand things, so <laughs> it was a natural. <laughs> I don't want to go too much deeper than that. Actually, you know, kids are probably, they ask the most difficult questions because they're, they're unabashed, they're uninhibited. They say, well, why is that? And you have to think about first principles. Why is that? Why do I believe that? My grandfather was an educator, high school principal. My mom taught for a year or two before she got married. And, and I've just always had an interest in short courses when I was in the industry and the profession, and then now working with students. 
I taught in the classroom for a little while at UT, but I travel every week somewhere. So now I'm doing 50, 60, sometimes 70 keynote or invited lectures a year uh, somewhere in the world. I think of that as my education. And, and teaching, teaching is a, is a multi-directional process. I find it really fun, particularly during the Q&A or the discussion, because that's when I begin to learn what's on their minds and I learn new things. So that, I think that's where my passion comes from, is just that engagement. And it lets me learn as I go. That's awesome. So people outside of Texas may have first become familiar with your name when you developed the movie Switch, which uh, addressed our energy future. What inspired you to create that movie? <laughs> I've been lecturing on energy for many years. And a documentary filmmaker named Harry Lynch made one of the first short format films on unconventional gas reservoirs in the Barnett. And he came, he was doing his research for that and came to interview me. So we did a little interview. He goes, boy, I've read all your stuff and looked at some of your background. Have you ever written a book? And I said, I'm too lazy to write a book. He goes, you want to make a movie? I said, well, <laughs> what would that take? And he said, eh, you can make a low level and mid and high level for this much money. And I said, let's do the big one. Unfortunately, that was about 2008, right before the big, the great recession, as we call it. But we did it. I raised the money throughout and we were filming in 2000, by 2009, 10, filming 11 countries. Uh, we did 50 interviews, 23 site visits, shot over 500 hours of film, uh, and, and then put that together into that 98 minute or whatever it is piece. Um, a lot of fun. Energy was the star. And we were showing the pros and cons in a very you know, objective way, nonpartisan way. Tried again, peer reviewed, had people look at all that. Didn't understand at that time what who our audiences would really be. But it ended up very interesting to the public in that, but it was the academic community that picked it up. It got into 50 countries, thousands of universities, literally, and now high school and middle school campuses because we produce these short format, one to three minute bits from Switch, made the Switch Energy Lab, the Primers and 101s, and have a 300 video library now on the switchon.org website. And it continues to play. Uh, professors and teachers will start a class with it, and not just STEM. Uh, it's in business schools, policy schools, uh, liberal arts and social sciences, because it introduces energy globally, and then you can start to talk about it and in ways that we didn't expect. So that's, that's the genesis, and Harry's a smart guy. He's way, I'm just a pretty face, he's he way smarter than I am. And we have a lot of fun working together. And, and so that's, that's how it came about. And uh, years later, we said, I, I continued to lecture. Harry went on and did a beautiful series on mental health as a documentary filmmaker. And then I said, Harry, you know, we kind of left out a third of the world with switch, we went where energy was or existed, and we left out the part where energy didn't exist. That's when I formed a 501c3, and we really dove into the energy poverty story, and then more broadly into high school pieces and a museum film and lots of other things we're doing now. 
well, I know you've been finishing the sequel, Switch On, that deals with energy poverty. So I believe you said on your panel session at IPTC yesterday that it's now available. Literally this morning, <laughs> I was sending final little tweaks, you know, take that phrase out or something like that. And the, the post-production or editing process is fascinating. It really is. These, we have a professional edit suite, sound design, color correction, original musical score and things like that. It's really fun. So it's ready. It will film on private screenings for corporations on campuses. We're taking it to some festivals, professional meetings. I, I, in fact, I talked to Mark Rubin and I think we're going to try to do a screening at the next SPE in Denver in the fall. Wonderful. And then it'll have a limited theatrical five or ten cities, major cities, where we go into movie theaters, and that allows movie reviewers and critics to see it and hopefully write stories in, in the papers. So that's distribution initially. We're building on a pretty good network from Switch still. We have uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of followers from that, so it's a self-distribution plan. The power of that is we're not limited to a single network or to a single um, uh, online, whether it's a Netflix or whatever, uh, now we can still put it there and might. But this gives us the ability to stream it from our own website to everyone who wants to see it and provide it essentially free. The corporate screenings will be asking for some contributions so that that'll help finance the campus and high school screenings. Sure. A lot of fun. Sure. So how will most people be able to see it when, I'm assuming it'll be available in the next few months? Yeah, it's coming out, like I said, the 29th of January, it'll be finished in screening it. Shell is going to be the first company to do a private screening. We're going to have a theatrical screening in Austin just for all the people that worked on it. We've rented a theater on February 9th. So anybody who wants to do a screening on their campus, in a corporation, at a local society meeting, or you know, a civic group, a scout troop, anything like that, you just go to a, a switch on website, register very simply your name, well, the date you want it, and how many you're going to show it to, because we're going to try to capture and quantify the metrics. That's and, great. Uh, and then we send you a link, and you can stream and screen it that way. And if, it's, if that doesn't work, then we'll send you a downloadable file. And for some places in the world, like I said, Switch went to over 50 countries, some places don't have the bandwidth to stream, so they could download and then use it that way. But we're trying to capture rigorous metrics. It's fun on our website. We can show uh, all the different countries that are hitting the website of Switch, and it's remarkable, really, the people that want just nonpartisan objective energy information. I'm surprised, really, how hard that is to get to. I mean, there are the IEA, EIA, uh, BP, uh, the Shell, others put out neat energy statistics. But when you start looking at films or even uh, podcasts or, or, or blogs, pretty quickly you can see the bias of whoever is presenting the information. It's hard not to be, because energy impacts all of our lives in every way. So we really work to be as objective and nonpartisan as we can, which means critical thinking, pros and cons, 
not always in agreement. Somebody might have a problem with this or with that because it doesn't agree necessarily with our own leanings, but that's okay. That's the group we're targeting, and it gives us the staying power. It, it stands the test of time. Switch was released in 2012. It's 2020, and it's still being screened in campuses all over the world for that reason. It's a little long in the tooth in a few places, and we've updated a lot of the short format video content on the switchon.org website so that we can keep up, but because, you know, the energy world evolves. Um, but it's, it's something I'm passionate about, Harry's passionate about, and our, and our small team is. So you've looked into the subject, and uh, fortunately in 2018, we fell below a billion people living in energy poverty without electricity, but we still have nearly three million people who uh, don't have access to clean cooking fuels. Yeah, three billion people. What yeah. will it take to eliminate energy poverty? And, and those statistics are remarkable. Um, the billion people without electricity, that's the equivalent of three United States in population. We see about 2.5 to 2.7 on the cooking side. And, and that means cooking with biomass of some kind, wood or coal or dung inside the home. We feature that and switch on in Nepal and go to a local hospital as well as visiting Sanukanchi in her home. And then look at the options to more modern fuels, which is largely LPG or biogas systems in the home or even induction electric cooktops, things that you can do that don't have the smoke. The particulates from cooking inside kill over 3 million people a year, wow. which is more than malaria and AIDS combined. And who knew? And it's so solvable. Plus, it leads to deforestation on a massive scale as people try to gather the firewood uh, for heating and cooking inside. It's one of the leading causes of that actually. So there's a lot of ramifications. Eliminating it means education. It means teaching how to fish, not bringing fish so that we can have options and alternatives coming in and then in, in the local culture, the local community, the local political system, and they vary all over the world, these can be adopted in ways that make sense for that community. It's not easy. Um, remarkably, I think, our work and others show the leading disruptor to addressing this is corruption at all levels, senior government, mid-range and local leaders, and even in the communities where a, you don't want them to have access because you start to get a light in a home, you can read at night, you get education, and then all the things that go along with that that are positive, health care, um, direct tie between education, lower fertility rates, uh, big issues like immigration and migration when you begin to create healthy economies. You don't necessarily want to leave or have to leave because of jobs or other forms of corruption. Uh, the rights and freedom of women. It's the women who are going to get the water, cooking inside, not getting to go to the schools like the men do in many cultures. So there are huge uh, issues, uh, certainly healthcare, vaccines and refrigeration that go along with access to stable electricity that, that, that come along with this. So providing this is 
sounds like a big challenge and it is, but there are systems, whether it's in Nepal bringing natural gas from India as LPG, putting it, there's factories now creating uh, the LNG canisters, which get delivered on various systems to the homes, including right up to the end to a bicycle that I rode and took two canisters to a local home. And so it's there, even in some of the poorest economies in the world. Electricity, certainly in indigenous communities, off the grid, if you will, in rural areas, distributed renewables is the only way initially. There are no good roads, there are no pipelines, there are no wires. So you're bringing in probably mostly solar panels or pico-hydro in rivers or, or, or small micro-wind turbines, but mostly solar. The first thing people get when they get electricity in their home is, is you may know this, but many don't, a cell phone. Yeah, that's what they plug in. So the communication starts immediately and now all of a sudden there's a global awareness of what exists in the world. And, but then as you start to grow that demand in those indigenous communities, and that's the, that's the 900 million to a billion people, start to scale some things up. We feature another thing in Switch On, we call it kind of under the grid. This is the slums which have tremendous populations around the world as people move to cities. You're looking at hundreds of millions of people moving to cities every year globally today. And mostly they go to very poor parts of those cities. So under the grid means there's wires there, but you can't afford it or get access to them. We feature uh, Kibra, which is the largest slum in Africa outside Nairobi in Kenya. And look at the challenges there, which include the corruption. Kenya Power brought in the electricity using tokens and cell phones, so creating credit and commerce to buy it. And then the cartel that runs the slum like they do all over the world said, great, we'll tap in illegally around those and wire them up and charge a little bit less money. Only the problem is they don't know what grounding is. It's all corrugated metal. So when it rains, there are cats and dogs and children and people dying of electrocution all the time. So you'll see us talk about this in, in, the, in that section of the film. So the whole challenge of, of that, and then of course the clean cooking is another area that we feature, so. But they're all solvable. And I think I love to focus on the radical middle, which is where you bring energy and the economy and the environment together and try to address some of these very tough social problems with, with science and engineering and economics, as well as social solutions, policy and regulation appropriately, but it's really challenging space because everybody has their own biases and their own, but this sits right there. And I think this is one of those areas that everybody can get their heads around. If we end deforestation, the practice of it and plant those trees back, it helps with CO2 uptake and climate change. And then we bring in clean fuels and it helps with energy poverty. And you start to create the micro markets where somebody's now selling an induction cooktop or they're selling LPG. And it's the women who lead those micro markets. The research shows that they'll invest back in the community three times more than the men will. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> and so uh, you can start to see different groups 
that would come together around this if we could just let go the idea. Some would resist, well, it's natural gas and that's a fossil fuel, that's terrible. Well, it doesn't have sulfur and nitrogen and particulates and mercury and the things that coal or woods do. So it's much better for indoor cooking and you can distribute it. Yeah, it's a hydrogen fuel, methane, carbon and four hydrogens, but let's get over that. Or, or some might, on the other side, might resist, well, let's, let's bring a, you know, a natural gas power plant or a coal power plant or a nuclear reactor. Well, no, <laughs> this is not that. It might be in a decade or two decades, but it's not that. So how do we, how do we facilitate that? And mostly it's going to be creating from the bottom up, the community structures that let, we say, empower the people to empower the people to empower themselves. And that's how this will work so that the local leaders can be part of it, but not in the way of it. And I think, I think industry and governments and academics can work together in this space and and it's common space. It's something that have benefits for all of us. A win-win-win. Yeah, it sounds like it, and uh, certainly a, a, a great way to uh, that we can affect what's happening in the world with just small efforts, mm -hmm. just little things that snowball. Right. And again, it's 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 not aid. It's it's bringing the uh, the tools for the communities themselves to sustain the process. So when we, in Switch, we brought first solar to an indigenous community in Colombia, the Arhuaco village of Lunchuqua on the Venezuelan border. Eight days, brought a small team, young people, our film crew, and they had invited us a year earlier, and we literally paid for and brought everything from all over the world. So we'll feature the transportation that was required to get solar panels, wires, the battery, and install this over these eight days in mud huts and thatch roofs, a three and a half kilowatt array. It's, it's half what you'd put on your home. Okay, but seven mud huts with thatch roofs with light, three with uh, one, three ceiling fans in the community hut and one refrigerator freezer. That's what we accomplished. And these indigenous people who had not really seen each other before at night, other than over a fire, when they go into the town, but in their own villages, it, it's remarkable, You'll, this story comes and goes throughout Switch On. But that's how, and we didn't, we couldn't bring hydro, they didn't, the river was sacred that runs through town, they didn't want wind, it was only solar. They have a very specific requirement for that set of things. And, but again, this is how it happens. But it's gonna take effort. But in the end, my wife and I, well, the battery, these are expensive. These are big lead acid battery stack. It's ten to $15,000. They agreed to replace that battery in eight to 10 years. So they are selling popsicles from the refrigerator and keeping the money and the village will pay for the, so this is the sustainability piece, their own battery replacement. And the panels, the frames will be good, but the panels are probably a 20 to 30 year lifespan. You know, it's the challenge with any form of energy. I go off topic here a little bit, but what I'm describing is the sun that's renewable, but panels and batteries aren't renewable there. You have, you have to mine them, you manufacture them, you deliver them through transportation, and then you have to replace them and do it again. So it's not, 
renewable. It's right. just a different kind of infrastructure to collect a different kind of energy. But all of that has environmental challenges, all of it. Where are the batteries gonna go when they wear out? We hope they will take them and recycle them properly. Where are the panels gonna go when they wear out? And they eventually end up in landfill. So, you know, there's nothing that, no, no, no silver bullets, nothing comes without cost. But that, that sustainability in Nepal, um, selling these induction cook stoves and then and then you see people starting to create little centers of access to food and cooking that isn't just in the home you're listening to the spe podcast in this episode vp of communications glenda smith is talking to energy expert and storyteller scott tinker We'll return to their conversation in just a moment. First, we wanted to invite you to experience the latest SPE publication, Data Science and Digital Engineering in Upstream Oil and Gas. This week, hybrid machine learning is explained in non-technical terms, and a new supercomputer is claiming to be the most powerful in the world. Visit DSDE online. A link is in the show notes of this episode. Now, let's get back to the SPE podcast. This week, we're talking to Scott Tinker about his travels. In Ethiopia, you see um, on the street now sewing machines that are run with electricity. Uh, when we went to Ethiopia and Vietnam, the way they're addressing energy poverty is on a much different scale. Not the Maasai, but in the cities. Addis Ababa and others in, in Vietnam. So in Ethiopia, they are building the GERD. It's called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's three times the size of our Hoover Dam. It's on the Blue Nile branch of the Nile, which flows north and merges with the White Nile into Cairo, Egypt, right on the Sudanese border. We flew out there, spent some days, and. And you can't imagine the size of this. It's about two thirds of the way complete, a multi, multi-billion dollar project paid for by Ethiopia. Each Ethiopian citizen gives a month of their salary to this project. It's national pride because Cairo threatened to bomb it because <laughs> it's on the Nile and by colonial law, uh, Egypt had rights to the Nile and Ethiopia said, well, maybe not, maybe it's, this is our headwaters. So now it's changed the balance of power in North Africa, and they're at the table having conversations. This dam is a 6.4 gigawatt. There are 1,600 megawatt turbines. So that's like six nuclear reactors, 10 coal power plants, wow. uh, 10,000 wind turbines, wow. two megawatt each. So, you know, you start to think about scale and environmental impact. and and it will provide electricity to about half the country. That's 50 million people. And they'll be able to sell some to local countries and bring in revenue as well. So this is a whole different solution for energy poverty. Vietnam is further along. They are now competing with China and other Southeast Asian countries to manufacture stuff that you and I buy. We get everything from Southeast Asia now. They're going to solve this. They built all their hydro. It's a long, narrow country, 1,100 miles or so jungle, Vietnam. 
So wind and solar is really not possible. They're not gonna cut down jungle. So they're gonna do it with coal power plants. They're building 50 new 400 megawatt coal power plants. And you say, coal, are you kidding? Well, no, it's affordable. It's available to them. They have their own coal resource and trains. We go into a mine, we go out on the barges, we go to the coal power plant, we go into the community throughout Switch On. And it's reliable. So, you know, they don't like the particulates and the air pollution that comes along with burning coal, but the jobs, the stable electricity, I ask them, have you always had electricity in your, in your home? And they laugh and they say, of course we have, you know, we're not their equivalent word. We're not Hicks. <laughs> we're not country bumpkins. And when I ask that around the world, other places, oh no, we've never had electricity in our home. This is, this is new. So Vietnam is further along, but they needed to go to that next level. We, we went in and we filmed inside a massive garment manufacturing plant that makes over a hundred name brands that you and I buy. Shirts and suits, 300 sewing machines by hand. Workers, amazing. We don't show that in Switch. We're gonna, that'll be in our third film. It won't be in Switch On, it'll be in making the Switch. Um, That's what happens when you go from severe poverty 25 years ago, now starting to grow. The demand for electricity goes up and you create commerce that you can sell something of value inside your own communities and to the world and create the wealth. And then pretty soon you go to a point where you can afford to invest in the environmental kinds of regulations and cleanup that we have. Clean air, clean water, clean soils. And that's, you gotta go up this curve and then over some hump, depending on where you are, to do that. And I don't think there's any way to circumvent that. There might be, but I haven't thought of it, you know, and I haven't read about it either. So we need to accelerate it. We need to accelerate the, the growth of the world so that we can all afford to invest in this. I just say, as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the comments I've heard from people about the ability to be concerned about climate change is a first world problem. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet, I think you're right. We have to solve the third world problems so that they also then can get to the point that that, that becomes more important than the immediate need of well, I need to be able to turn on a light and my children need to be able to do their homework and I need to be able to cook my food. And then you, you can get to those higher, higher order problems. So as, we, as you start to provide energy, particularly to the lowest economic scale, you'll begin to see ability to adapt to things. And climate change certainly one, and the things that go along with that, particularly sea level rise and other challenges, um, warming. So you have to have energy, air conditioning, and cool, you know, warming or cooling, severe cooling, which happens in places too. So heat uh, and, and other things to adapt to a changing climate. But more than that, uh, local air emissions, cleaning up the water, soil pollutions, the worst environmental impacts in the world, and I've been fortunate, I've been to 65 countries, are where it's poor. They simply can't afford to invest in that challenge or you got other problems and so you start to see with energy and and the underpinning of economic growth 
the ability to engage in the frameworks that allow us to address climate change and all sorts of other environmental impacts. So it's a virtuous cycle, but you have to have a certain level of, of wealth in order to be able to afford to do that. And again, accelerating to that is what's vital. And hopefully accelerating with energy sources and strategies that are cleaner, if you will, and by that I mean both atmospheric emissions, local air emissions, uh, things we put in the soils and in the waters. Clean to me, it has to involve the four pillars, <laughs> okay? And nothing's perfect, whether it's mining or manufacturing or landfill disposal or emissions of some kind from combustion, nothing's perfect. And, and so that's the, that's the circle that goes on, energy, the economy, the environment. That's the waltz of the three E's. So switching to first world problems for a moment, um, as the leave it in the ground drumbeat grows, certainly in Europe and increasingly in the US, how does the industry balance the need to provide power to the world with the environmental impacts of burning fossil fuels? Well, the keep it in the ground, which has been around for quite some time, it has more formal policy names now in the US and other places, but the genesis of that, I don't judge the intentions, hey, Fossil fuels are the problem, let's leave them in the ground. Let me go to an analogy though. That be, to me, it's the equivalent of saying, hey, I could, there's this thing I know that requires all sorts of fresh water and all sorts of you know, chemical things to make it work. And, and then we have to dispose all this and it runs off into the rivers. And, and you say, and it's an energy source. You say, what's that? I say, well, it's, it's food, okay? We, we have to have water and fertilizers and we deplete the soils and it runs off into rivers, but we're not going to end food. <laughs> we're not gonna end that source of energy, the, the calorie for our bodies. So it's, not, it's not the energy source, it's making agriculture better. It's not coal necessarily, uh, or certainly oil, natural gas. They are fossil fuels, one's all carbon, one's carbon hydrogen, one's mostly hydrogen, but it's how do you make the the process of, of producing the, <laughs> yeah, it's a big thing. You're producing the, the infrastructure to drill for and explore for oil, natural gas, moving it to where it needs to be, refining the products, uh, moving them to where we use them, combusting them. There's a lot of environmental impact to that chain and we can do better along the way. We are and can do better. Again, wealth and regulation makes that better. It's where it's done best is where in the, in the nations that regulate it the best. If we move that over to nations that aren't well regulated, use whatever terms you want for those, but, but lower income, different uh, political and governance systems, arguably we're not helping the environment. The same product gets produced with lower regulations and you end up local air, land and water, and the one global atmosphere emitting more for that unit of commerce than you would have in a regulated economy. So have we done good for the climate or not? And, and I think I can argue very easily not. So now 85% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels still, coal, oil, natural gas, but if you throw in nuclear, you're approaching 90%.
we're not going to end that in the world. That would be an environmental disaster. <laughs> and I didn't say an economic disaster. I said an environmental disaster because of the loop between the energy, the economy, and the environment. It, and, and, and so I don't judge the intentions. I just think there's an education that has to go on about how to make this work better. And again, the other 10%, mostly hydro, but then a growing solar capacity, certainly wind has been growing and waves and tides and biomass, and biomass is a big part of that. Not renewable, I mean, it's renewable and you can grow it again, but it, biomass, burning biomass doesn't have helped the climate. I mean, even, even though plants take it back up, and you burn it, well, there's a lot of stuff in between, cutting down the wood, turning it into wood pellets, putting it on barges or trains, moving it to where it needs to be picked up, and then burning it in. This, isn't a, this is not a zero emissions process. But all those renewable energies that make up the other 10% or so have their own environmental challenges. And, and I think energy honesty energy integrity will allow us to address these challenges in a way that brings the thoughtful people from different sectors, industry, governments, academics, NGOs, together and the public to say, hey, what can we do here in our part of the world? Everybody has different resources. Some have great sun, some have great wind, some have great oil and gas, some have uranium and thorium, waves and tides, or you know, geothermal, I haven't mentioned, but wherever that exists with your resources, how can you go about making the environmental impacts lower and still underpin your economy so that you can afford to continue to do that? That's, that's sustainability to me. A sustainable energy future is one in which we lift the world from poverty and we address the environmental impacts of all forms of energy on all forms of the environment. That's sustainable. We've gotten a little myopic, I think, in our environmental focus. Positive side is with education and getting particularly young people who are so passionate and so smart and so engaged globally. We, we get those good minds involved in this on social media in a way that's, I'm gonna call it a safe space. And what that means to me is you're safe to say anything you want to say not safe from not hearing something you don't want to hear, safe to say anything you want to say or, or think about so that good ideas all come to the table and they get filtered through your own approaches and we come out with some brilliant future solutions. And again, I think right now there's a lot of shaming that goes on on social media of anybody who talks about fossil fuels as part of the future solution. And I, I just, uh, I, it's, again, that's well intended, but I think there's a lack of understanding of the role they play in creating the health that allows you to both clean them up and do many other good things in those communities to grow our, our total environmental and economic future. I know you've always worked to bring everybody to the table to find those solutions. It, it goes to the, the, the kind of circular uh, thing you were talking about. Um, what are some of the challenges of trying to bring all these people who maybe have a first world perspective versus a third world perspective? How do we bring all of that together at the table to come up with the right solutions? 
biggest challenge is getting rid of my own biases. <laughs> <laughs> For all of us. We, we all have them. And so how, how do I frame things and think about things? Um, access to a variety of groups. So what typically works the best is finding some areas of focus that allow people to come together and see a particular win in it for whatever they're passionate about. We talked about the whole poverty deforestation and cleaning fuels challenge uh, on a bigger scale. We're doing it with earthquakes now where we're the process of disposing of large fluids produced from shale changes the pressure conditions in the subsurface and induces normal, you know, uh, faults that are natural to move sooner than they would and it creates small earthquakes. We've got state government, federal government, industry, NGOs, and academics all working on this problem together in the radical middle. Nobody's completely happy, but we're trying to solve the disposal and hydraulic fracturing approaches so that earthquakes that are small aren't felt at the surface and do no damage. Um, there are many examples of things like that that are challenges to get folks talking, but thoughtful people tend to want to solve real problems. You're always going to have folks that want to stay in their own, you know, Bubble. extreme energy, extreme environment, extreme economy worlds. And, oh, it's all about jobs. No, it's all about the environment. You know, we'd be better off without humans. <laughs> um, it's all about uh, energy, you know, just give me the energy and don't go mess around with all that other stuff. So that's going to exist and, and you can't fix that, but, but, 80, 85, 90%. It's just, if we can grow that radical middle and find solutions that aren't perfect, perfect can't be the, the, uh, in the way of, of solved. You know. right. and, and I'll give you an example. This was CO2 sequestration or storage that we call it now to simplify that. If I can capture CO2 emissions, and put them back into the ground in big saline aquifers and oil fields for EOR. And even if 10% of them leak off, it's not nuclear, it's not, it's not fission products, it's not radioactive waste. All of it's going into the atmosphere today. If I can, if 10% leaks off and I can keep 90% there for a long time, that's a win. Now you have to be able to afford to do that. Right. Let's not make zero CO2 leak off getting because that's going that 10 percent is going to cost so much more money let's not let that get in the way of doing something affordable and making something happen at scale and this is where i think purists on all aspects get tripped up you know what what's happening today what can we do better now i, I again i don't want to do that with fission products or i don't want to do that with mercury <laughs> or anything that is truly a pollutant that can cause damage to water, crops, uh, livestock, and humans. And I'm not talking about that. But carbon dioxide is, it's okay in this room where if we're drinking soda pop, we're drinking it. You know, it's, but in, at, the, at, the, you know, at the levels we're emitting it now, um, putting a lot of it away would be a good thing as long as we don't let perfect get in the way to good. So is there something the average engineer or employee in the oil and gas business can do to contribute to the solution? Absolutely. 
yeah, there, you know, there's many different areas we could go, but I think one of them is start to get educated ourselves. We work in the energy business, but it doesn't mean we necessarily understand the full energy scene in the world. That's why I started doing Switch. Um, we have the Primers and 101s that look at all of these challenges on an all-film base, short format, basic level. And then I put all of my slides that I make on our website now. I have 20 slide packs of animated PowerPoints, and I record my voice under them so you can hear what I would say about it. And anybody can download them. And you can create your own custom talk to go talk to a scout troop or a school or a church group or a civic group or whatever you want to do, begin to engage in the educational process because you have some expertise and understanding about energy. And it, you know, if we don't do that, I promise you others are. And the education they're getting is not well informed. It's passionate, but it's not well informed. So I would say it's incumbent upon all of us to get out there and engage. You don't have to be a great speaker you can you know in a small group you can show a few slides and we have references on all of them where the data come from etc and don't be shy you know don't be shy to tell your neighbor when they ask you what do you do for a living don't mumble out i work in the oil and gas <laughs> say it say it proudly i work in the oil and gas industry and i help to lift the world out of poverty what do you do that's how i answer that question if I'm in the oil and gas sector. I work in the energy business. And, and so and then the other piece I think is being open to engagement across the different sectors, NGOs, local and state level governments, education, uh, public, which I already described reaching into the public and educational systems. Be open to that kind of engagement Corporately, we all have different roles, but I think we can do a better job of, of engaging in what we do and why it matters and then learning from what are the challenges there. Why are, why are people so passionate? Why are they marching? Which, if you're that passionate, you're gonna go stand out in the rain and march. Something means something to you. Why is that? Our intent, they're not, nobody's dumb, nobody's, intending to do something to harm the earth or humans. We all have common goals that way is to do good. So we got to get educated about the different ways we all think and then find ways to engage in a community that addresses some of these issues and be part of that solution. It's, it's critical that we all do that. I think that's great. And, and you, you got to the question I was going to ask you last, which is, uh, I've heard you have an interesting way of answering the question, uh, what do you do? <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, I, I think it's a great answer. So Scott, with Switch On done, what are some of the other things you're doing? On the K through 12 side, we had an interesting thing happen. We found out through one of my graduate students that high school teachers in the United States were using our energy lab in their AP environmental science class. Me in the white lab coat with goofy, goofy glasses, 29 little high, highly produced experiments. How's a battery work? We make a battery, what's in a frac fluid? We dump it all in, you know? And so that led us to, I spoke to 350 AP environmental science teachers who had gathered in Cincinnati last summer to grade the exams. We formed an advisory council and we have now produced a 
online platform to serve our videos with quizzes and curriculum that they've helped us develop into the energy component of that year-long class, AP Environmental Science. And by the way, 200,000 kids took that last year wow. in high schools in the U.S., and it's growing. So Switch is going to be the month of energy content, supplemental, but heavily supplemental. We're piloting it now. We hope to roll it out in September. That's a huge influence is, is you can get critical thinking going on at the high school level. The teachers want to think that way. Um, it's free to them. So it's like a digital textbook for that component. And that's how we can get to all the teachers. You know, you're not having to work with the education authorities in all the different states, et cetera. It's just a choice. So that's a big one. And then the other thing we're doing is we're making a museum film four minutes long. Why does energy matter? Houston Museum of Natural Science and Denver Museum of Nature and Science have agreed for initial runs and others are starting to hear about it. Uh, Matthew McConaughey teaches a film class at UT Austin, but the guy who teaches a lot of it is a guy named Scott Rice and he, he produces uh, commercials, high quality commercials. He's the director of this, along with Harry Lynch. And this film is going to, without any words, only one uh, text graphic in the middle of it show why energy matters in our lives. It's a very expensive piece, Hollywood quality, where kids get off a school bus. I have a cameo as the school bus driver. <laughs> and they start walking home and things on their cell phones and things start disappearing behind them. The cars, the bus, the houses, and not digital. This is, we actually, it's, a, it's an old way of shooting over and over and over. Go into the house, they grab a glass of water, a sandwich, go watch the TV, the refrigerator disappears, and then the house disappears, and their clothes disappear, and they're sitting in a field with underwear on, and, and they see their friends in the houses that are all gone. That takes a minute. And then you start showing the energy systems required to cut lumber, mill it, bring it on boats, bring it to lumber yards, get it, manufacture your home, and the home reappears. Full water cycle full food cycle, full electronic cycle, in short, very powerful ways. And, and it kind of loops to the end where the kids are now fully clothed with the sandwich and the cell phone, the house is rebuilt and, and they're back on the school bus. And, and that is a very powerful visual way of showing what energy does for us in our lives. And we hope to get that in museums across the country and the world. And it'll be free to them again, because this is all supported by gifts from industry, from individuals, from foundations. And I do all the fundraising, which is a side job, but you know, it's a former 501c3. So any, any interested groups out there and companies, we would love to have the support because um, that's how all this happens. Will that movie be on the Switch On website as well? I'd look forward to seeing it. Eventually it could. We want to keep it kind of exclusive museums for a while. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Um, I'm sure our listeners will look forward to seeing Switch On, and uh, they can already look at Switch on the Switch On website. So Yeah, you bet. Thank you. You bet. Petroleum Engineers, the largest individual member organization serving managers, engineers, scientists, and other professionals worldwide in the upstream segment of the oil and gas industry. 
Learn more at sbe.org.